0: Amen. If you've read the novel Hugo Cabret or seen the movie, you know that there is a scene at the end where they are talking about the first motion picture that ever happened. And in that first motion picture, it was simply this. It was a picture from this angle of a train moving into a train station. A technological marvel at the time because these people did not have handheld devices where they could make their own motion picture any old moment. These people had never seen a moving picture before. And do you know what the reaction was to the people who were seated in the theater to watch this on the screen, a locomotive coming at them? It wasn't even in 3D. And they panicked. They panicked because they'd never seen anything like it before. Here was a train coming at them and the whole crowd was gasping and afraid. They couldn't marvel yet because they were so taken with the reality of it. It made them very afraid. Mark's Gospel that we've been walking with Jesus through during this Lenten season that's now over and has culminated in this Day When Death Has Been Defied a New Creation Has Begun, tells us about these three women that we've seen multiple places already in Mark who have seen something that they never expected. And they couldn't marvel at it yet because it was, well, freaky. They didn't have a concept They had no category. They had no imaginative furniture to place in a certain way to make themselves ready for what they were to see. And so they find themselves trembling and bewildered, saying nothing to anyone because they were afraid. But they know that something has happened. Something cosmic has happened. They have received, as John Updike said in one place, supernatural mail. They have received a communique. Communications from the heavens. And they're responding to it with alarm. They're responding to it with fright. Because they've never seen a thing like this before. Today, as we think about this supernatural male that God has revealed to the universe and to us here at Durham Road in the resurrection, we're going to think about the words of a misfit and the actions of a ragman and how this supernatural male leads us to a response. Some of you have gotten, perhaps, emails promising things. Counting yourselves lucky to come upon the good fortune of having some African person who has an enormous amount of wealth that they are eager to transfer to you if only you will provide them with your bank account. I urge you, do this. Free money's out there. Do you understand sarcasm? Sometimes we get communication, sometimes we get mail that doesn't ring true, and we know it's It's not true. We know it can't be believed. We know it's to be discarded and to be trashed. But this is a piece of mail from God Himself that is meant for everybody to read, to be read by, and to respond to. Never to be trashed. And if you want to size it up in the best way, you've heard me do this before, but it rings in my ears every Easter. The short story that Flannery O'Connor wrote called "A Good Man Is Hard to Find," and "A Good Man Is Hard to Find" is a story of a of a grandmother with her family, and she's urged them to take her on a, take them on a road trip to a house. And turns out she can't remember if it was either in Georgia or in Tennessee. But as they're driving along, she has snuck upon or within the car ride, some contraband. In a picnic basket, she has brought her cat. And as they are wont to do, as they are wont to destroy everything good and decent in the earth, this cat... It's the only part of God's creation that He did not say was good. This cat... It's a joke. This cat jumps out while they're driving from the picnic basket. Basket. Throws itself around the neck of her son Bailey while he's driving the car. Adhered there like a caterpillar on her on his neck. Bailey freaks out. He turns the car abruptly. It goes careening off the side of the road and the car flips. The grandmother lands in the front seat under the dash. The mother with her newborn gets thrown out of the car with the children. Surprisingly, no one is injured. But they are stranded on this dusty road. They are in dire need of help wondering from whence it will come when along comes a black hearse-looking car. Little do they know that these are three men, one who is shirtless, who have just broken out of the penitentiary. Ah, Easy for me to say. These flowers, if I pass out in a minute, (laughs) it's going to be because of allergic reaction. They're killing me. They're awfully beautiful, but it's a sign that Jesus hasn't made all things new yet because I can't tolerate them. These men have just broken out of the pen. And at first they think, this family does, that they're going to get help. But one by one they cart off the family, leaving only the grandmother standing there with a man who calls himself the misfit because he can't make fit all the punishment he got with the crimes that he committed. This woman is frightened because he's holding the gun to her chest. And at one point, she screams out, Jesus! Jesus! And what she meant to do was urge the man before he shot her to, to pray to Jesus, but it came out more like a curse. Jesus! Jesus, she said. "Yes'm," the misfit, said as if he agreed, Jesus, why, he thrown everything Off balance. It was the same case with him as it was with me, except he ain't committed any crime. But they could prove that I had committed one. And as she continues to talk to him, he says, you know, woman, Jesus was the only one that ever raised the dead. And he shouldn't have done that. He's thrown everything off balance. If he said and did what he said, then it's nothing for you to do but throw off everything and follow him. But if he didn't, then it's nothing for you to do but to enjoy the few minutes you got left the best way you can by killing somebody or burning down the house or doing some other meanness because there ain't no pleasure but meanness. The misfit, this criminal, has placed in his mouth the calculus about this event that these women were frightened about, which Mark has reported, as has John, as has Luke, as has Matthew. He has rightly surmised That the decision of every life that's sitting here today and every life that you'll meet tomorrow and every life that you'll ever know about has to do with this event. If He did what He said, then there's nothing for you to do but to throw off everything and follow Him. But if He didn't, you may as well spend the short time you got left doing whatever meanness you want. See, he sizes it up. And for us today, I'd urge you to consider this sizing up and say, if he did what he did, then there's nothing for us to do but to throw off everything and to follow him. See, the misfit, he has some inclination as he goes on. The woman, frightened, faint with fear. And the horror of the moment says to him, well, maybe maybe he didn't raise the dead. And she starts to crumble. And he says, I wasn't there. So I can't say. But I wish I had been there. He said, hitting the ground with his fist. It ain't right I wasn't there. Because if I had been there, I would have known. If I had been there, I would have known. And I wouldn't be like I am now. He has this sense that if he had been there, if he had seen it, then he could know for sure and that somehow if he had known for sure that his life could have taken a different trajectory altogether. But since he can't be sure, he's living as if it's false. And I would urge us today to think about this question. If he did what he said, if he got up from the dead, if he did what he said, We're going to talk about that for just a second. And some of you sitting here today, I mean, it's Easter. I know a lot of you. You believe He did what He said. But if you already believe it, then then use these words kind of like I was thinking about our lawnmower. we got a lawnmower. It's an old lawnmower. It's not as old as many of your lawnmowers. It's old to us. And I say as a boast or a confession one, I have never once maintained this lawnmower in any way. Over the last 11 years, it has received no new oil, no spark plug. But in season number 11, this Troy built wonder started on the first crank after a cranky winter. First crank with the help of the Lord himself. I pray every time before I start this thing. And I was thinking about this mower, how reliable it is. How it can be counted on, this old thing. I can count on it. I can count that it starts. I got a new mower, a riding tractor. You know, it broke down after the second time. And now it's going to sit in my yard for four years because I don't know what to do. But this old one, it keeps going. But I figure, you know, the blades on it aren't so sharp. They don't cut as well as they might. And so one of the things I might art to do, let's get the blade sharpened up so it can it can do its job better and i think listening to this idea of how we can know that he did what he said is a way of sharpening our blades so that we can mow down this trust as it grows up in our hearts so that we can we can bush hog over anxiety and fear when we start to think are we crazy to believe this stuff you got something sharp To cut that stuff down, you've got something also to offer those outside of you who haven't thought it through yet. Mark wants to show us, as many people have pointed out, Tim Keller points this out nobly, that he really believes that this happened. And part of the reason that you know he believes that it happened it's because of who He has at the grave. And of course, all the Gospel writers have these women at the grave as well. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. And see, that's His first error if you want to write something believable because everybody knows that women are hysterical. Wait, that's what the ancient world thought. If you're listening on the interweb, keep going after you hear women are hysterical. In the first century... A woman could not be counted on as a reliable witness in a court of law because you know how women are, right? That's what they thought. It's a sexist world. Now it's the opposite. Men can't be trusted, women probably mostly. But it's a rather inconvenient fact that God had it work out this way, that these women stumbled upon this grave. Because if they had wanted the early church to make sure people knew beyond the shadow of any doubt, they would have scrub this a little bit. They would have edited out some of it. But in fact, what you have is these women who don't believe what's happened. In fact, and they know where he was buried because in the previous chapter, we're told that they watched him die. In verse 40. And then in verse 47, that they were watching as Joseph of Arimathea bought a tomb, wrapped his body, and put it in the tomb. The women saw where he was laid. They didn't forget See, Mark continues to use their names and show how they were there because he wants you to see that all along the way, these women, they saw what was going on. And as they were walking along, they had no expectation. Even though Jesus had said multiple times, Mark repeats it thrice in the Gospel of Mark, the Son of Man will suffer on the third day, he will rise again. Nobody had the faintest expectation of that. These women were going with spices to put on His body to put down the odor. And their only concern is, as they are sad and making their way to the tomb, is this very practical one. Ah! They put a big stone in front of it. How are we going to get it off? They were not counting on anything like this. It's a weird way to start if it's not true. If you're trying to write a piece of propaganda. You wouldn't want to use names of people who are still alive that you could go ask about it. And you wouldn't want to use women. And then of course there's this whole other issue. In Jesus' time, there were all these messianic movements People who thought and claimed and gathered people around them saying, I am the Messiah. We're going to purify the temple. We are going to be the pure expression of God's people. We are going to destroy the Romans. We are going to establish the kingdom of Israel on the earth. And there was this one simple, unrefutable, undisputable litmus test for whether they were a Messiah or not. How do they respond once you kill them? I'm not saying it's polite. It's a little rated R. But this is a simple test. If you're Rome, or if you're the Jews, you got a guy claiming to be the Messiah. What happens when you chop his head off? Does the movement have its head chopped off too? Or does it die with the guy? And in every single case except for one, it died with the guy. But this Messiah, it chopped him down. And he got up. And these women who were trembling and bewildered, saying nothing to anyone because they were afraid, and these apostles who were huddled in a room afterward for fear of the Jews and of the Romans, they suddenly and strangely became bold. Willing to suffer immensely. Willing to to be beaten mercilessly because they knew something that was so true that they had seen with their eyes, they could never again unsee it. And it altered everything about them. You see, that's why the Apostle Paul could say that this bit about believing the resurrection is like the most important Jenga piece. Well, he doesn't use Jenga. He didn't know about it. Do you know the game Jenga? Where you stack things? Well, one day I sat here as the youth were having their opening luncheon, or dinner and I watched Mr. Tooney here take on his son in a game of life-size Jenga with cut-up Or what What size wood were they? Cut-up These things were tall as a grown man. And as they, meticulous as they are, engineering-type minds, they're pulling out these pieces hoping nothing falls. And I'm thinking, one of these guys is going to have a crushed foot later. Because if you mess up, if you pull out the wrong piece, the whole thing crumbles and it maims the foot of the person who's nearest it. They were skillful at their task. I don't know who won. It's probably not settled. But the Apostle says this idea about the resurrection, if it's not true, if it didn't really happen bodily like the Scriptures say, And if he didn't really report to lots of witnesses that you could ask about, these Gospels were written not very long after Jesus' death. People were living still. You could ask them. There's no way that you could perpetrate a hoax on that many people. Ask Lance Armstrong. (laughs) At some point, you get found out. But Paul says, if the resurrection didn't happen, you're still in your sins. You may as well do whatever you can to find whatever level of pleasure you can. See, because it is the giant Jenga piece that if you pull it out of Christianity, the world gets maimed. Christianity doesn't exist anymore. There's no hope. There's no hope for a new world. There's no hope for new life. There's no hope for forgiveness of sins. You know, if some guy walked around, some guy say, named Gary said to you, hey, I'm going to die for your sins. You would say, wow, that's really cool. You mean you'll take away my sins and you'll die for them? Gary says, well, yeah! And then he dies. And then he's just dead. What does that have to do with your sins? you got to get up after that to show you got something to do with God. And you've got to be telling people all along you had something to do with God. And the Apostle says, if he didn't get up, we're stuck. And we're hopeless. And we're pitiable people. But he did get up. And if he did that, then there's nothing for you to do but to throw off everything and follow him. As these women find what they did not expect, they meet an angel, a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they're alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene. That's who you're looking for. You know, it's interesting that this proclamation from the angel is one that reverberates through the ages. He's somebody that I guarantee you everybody in here, whether you're aware of it or not, is looking for. Oscar Wilde wrote a play called Salome. And this play demonstrates so heartily how God has the last word in human affairs. And Herod, this tetrarch of Judea, is told that Jesus is raising the dead. And Herod responds, I do not wish for Him to do that. I forbid Him to do that. I allow no man to raise the dead. This man must be told, found and told that I forbid him to raise from the dead. He recognized that Something had altered in the structure of reality that God had acted decisively in human affairs against the thing that we fear the most to begin to undo all that's horrible that's been done. It's a threat to power structures who want to maintain their power because it means there's only one power to be listened to. Jesus, the Nazarene, who is not here, but He is risen. If He can raise from the dead, then He's got to be listened to. And his emissary who's listening to Herod says, when asked, where is this man? And he says, Herod, he is in every place, my Lord. But it is hard to find him. See, this Jesus who's not in that tomb is now reigning, available for anyone who will seek him. And every one of you, I guarantee it, is seeking him whether you know the name or not. And even when you don't realize, though you know His name, though you have allegiance to Him, even though you don't realize it, even though you know His name, there are times you don't realize that it's Him you're seeking. reep The bold mouse in the Narnian tales. A mouse with a sword like the mouses in your houses. As He's on this journey, He recounts that He's heard this Poem sung like a lullaby over him where sky and water meet, where waves grow sweet. Doubt not, Reepa Cheep, To find all you seek, there is the utter east. To find all you seek, there is the utter east. And Reepa Cheep, this very conver- conversant and courageous mouse, says, I don't know what it means, but the spell of it has been on me all my life. All this life he knew there was somewhere, this utter east, where everything that I truly sought and everything that I longed for would be met in some way. And the angel says, you were looking for Jesus, the Nazarene. He's not here. He's risen. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene. Anybody in here this morning who hates death? Who's cussed cancer? who's spat because he can't enjoy beautiful flowers like that without being about to fall over. (laughs) Who's seen things about yourself and thought, why am I like this? Why can't I be better? Who's looked at relationships and said, why can't we get along any better than this? Who's watched how an employer has treated someone you loved and said, ugh, this shouldn't be. Whether you've realized it or not, it's been Jesus you're seeking. Because you see, when Jesus was raised from the dead by God, this decisive action was the beginning of this new creation where all things sad will be made untrue. Where this new creation, where Jesus says, I am making all things new, human lives and earth itself, so that God's good earth can be replenished to what it needs to be. So relationships can be what they ought to be. So that death which hangs as a pall over every single life can be eradicated forever and transformed into a doorway through which we enter a new world. You don't realize it, but you've always been seeking this Jesus. And related to that, listen to what the angel says. He says, he's not here, but go and tell his disciples and Peter he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Go and tell his disciples and Peter. And Peter, for me, is a magnificent two word addition. A message, apparently, that this angel had been given. It's so remarkable to think, you know, Mark was Peter's secretary. He had been with Peter. All these stories that are told in Mark, have, they're essentially Peter. so we think, his account of what happened in the Gospel. And to think of Peter telling Mark, and the angel said, and tell Peter. You know, it's remarkable because, you know, Peter. Peter is a guy, if you think about this, you think about how you want to be remembered for posterity. You think about how you like to present yourself to the world. Think about the way you curate and self-edit on the interweb, on Facebook, on your tweets, how you search for just the right words. Now think instead if someone had come up to you while you were sleeping and they saw you sleeping and your mouth was hung open and you had drool coming out the side of your mouth and they took a picture of you and they posted it on Instagram So that everybody for the history, for the future of forever, could see you sleeping in that disgusting way. Peter has the great joy, I don't know if we think of this sometimes, of having been snapshotted. Of having been photographed and chronicled at some of the moments that I know in his life he'd least want to be remembered. We often have the opportunity to conceal things like that about ourselves. We don't want people to know the truth about us. Peter had no choice. Even if everyone scatters, I never will. My fidelity, my courage will never wane for You, Lord Jesus. And we get to see snapshots. And over here, video recordings of Peter saying, Who is this dude? J- 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 How do you spell that, J- Jesus? No, I don't. I, I'm just here having a barbecue.
1: I have no idea who that
0: guy is. Jesus weeps. Peter weeps as he realizes what Jesus has said is true. Tim Creader wrote this article once, and the New York Times said, "I know what you really think of me." And he begins this story by saying, I once sent out a mass email to all my friends with pictures of all these goats that I had just bought. Demonstrating, one, how great the goats were. And two, what a wonderful thing it was that I had done it. And I got in response an email that I was not the intended recipient of. One of my friends had replied to another of my friends about my email and had accidentally carbon copied me. And in it said something about the ridiculous way that I spend my uncomfortable income and ended with something like, oof. And he said, I've often thought that the single most devastating cyber attack a diabolical and anarchic mind could design would not be on the military or financial sector, but simply to simultaneously make every email and text ever sent universally public. It would be like suddenly subtracting the strong nuclear force from the universe. The fabric of society would suddenly and instantly evaporate. Every marriage, friendship, business partnership dissolved. Civilization, which is held together by a fragile fragile web of tactful phrasing, polite omissions, white lies, would collapse in an apocalypse of bitter recriminations and weeping and breakups. Fist fights, divorces, bankruptcies, scandals and resignations, blood feuds, litigation, wholesale slaughter in the streets, and lingering ill will. If everything that was ever said of bias about others, if all of a sudden it was all just public domain, the world would fall apart. And he says we can't bear to realize when we catch a glimpse of what someone really thinks about us behind our back when they're offering their uncensored opinion, it wounds us, doesn't it? To realize how little space we occupy in their mind because that's how we treat each other. And to think that the angel says, and make sure you tell Peter. You know, when Jesus meets up with the disciples, He doesn't slap anybody around. He doesn't upbraid anybody for their falling away, which He told them was going to happen. He says, peace. This is why you're seeking Him. You want to be accepted like that. You want to know that everything that's wrong in the world can be righted. You want to know that you yourself can be righted. That everything about you that's awful can be erased and altered. Do you ever get sick of yourself? You know, one of the hard things I'm preaching this morning in front of my family, I've got family members here, always always preach in front of some of them, but in front of my in-laws. Well, you see, that's hard. It's so much better to preach in front of people that don't know you at all. And they say, oh, you're so... But see, if they know you, they've been on vacation with you, you realize how fraudulent everything you say sounds. I'm a grumpy, moody, selfish, awful dude who wearies of himself. And to hear my Savior risen saying, and make sure you tell Peter of the flimsy faith that I'm waiting for him. To hear him say over all the disciples that left him when he needed them most, wholeness, shalom, shalom, Peace! I dignify you with my healing. I send you out as my agents. That's why you're seeking for Him. It's Jesus of Nazareth that you seek. If He did it, there's nothing for you to do but to leave off everything and to follow Him. I close with what I told you I'd close with a Words of a Ragman. It's a story by Walt Wengerin that I think encapsulates this Jesus that we seek and may not even realize. I saw, he says, a strange sight. I stumbled upon a story most strange like nothing my life, nothing in my street sense or that my sly tongue had ever prepared me for. Early one morning before the dawn, It was a Friday. I witnessed a handsome, strong young man pushing an old cart with clean, bright cloths through the alleyways of the city. He was pulling this cart, and he was strong and handsome. And he was calling out in a clear, tenor voice, Rags! Oh, the air was foul and the first light filthy to be crossed by such sweet music rags, he said, new rags for old. I take your tired rags, rags. Now this, I thought, is a wonder. Because this man stood six feet four and his arms were as muscular and strong as tree limbs. And his eyes flashed intelligence. And I thought to myself, is this the only job a man like that can find selling rags throughout the city? And so I followed him. My curiosity drove me. And I was not disappointed. Soon the ragman saw a woman sitting on her back porch and she had her face buried in a handkerchief and she was crying a thousand tears, sobbing, her shoulders shaking, her elbows and knees made a sad X. And the ragman gently walked up to the back porch meandering around old tin cans and mangled toys strewn about and pampers. And he walked up to her gently and he said, give me your rag and I'll give you mine. And he slipped the handkerchief from her eyes and she looked up and he laid a plain linen cloth so clean and new that it shined across her hand. And she blinked from the gift to the giver. And then as he pulled away with his cart again, the ragman did a peculiar thing. He took her handkerchief and put it to his own face. Then suddenly he began to sob uncontrollably with his shoulders shaking as he pushed this cart along. Yet she was left without a tear. This is a wonder, I said to myself. And I followed this sobbing ragman like a child following a mystery that he cannot turn away from. In a little while, the sky showed gray against the rooftops and I could see the shredded curtains hanging in the black windows. And the ragman came upon a girl who had a bandage around her head and she had that bandage soaked with blood and a trickle of blood came down her face. Her eyes were empty. And he approached her with pity and said to her, donning a lovely yellow bonnet in his hand, "'Give me your rag.'" And I'll give you mine. And he took the bandage from her head and wrapped it around his own when suddenly it was soaked with his own blood. Coming down his face, the bandage soaked and the young girl with a lovely yellow bonnet was healed. As he walked away, I gasped because with that bandage went the wound. Rags. "'Rags! I take old rags!' The sobbing, bleeding, handsome, strong man cried out. The sun now hurt both the sky and my eyes as he seemed to hurry more and more and he came across a man who was leaned up against a telephone pole and he said to this man, "'Are you not going to work?' The man shook his head in disgust at the rag man. "'Don't you have a job?' he said. And the man Looked at him with a sneer and said, Are you crazy? And he pulled out his right jacket sleeve, which had been folded and placed in his pocket to reveal that he had only one arm. So, said the ragman, give me your jacket, and I will give you mine. Such quiet authority in his voice, this one-armed man took off his jacket and so did the ragman. And I trembled then at what I saw, for with the jacket went the ragman's arm and suddenly this man leaning against the post had two strong arms as thick and muscular as tree limbs. And the ragman had only one. Go to work, he said. And after that he found a drunk man lying unconscious, unconscious on the ground beneath an army blanket Punched, wizened, and sick. And he took that blanket from him and wrapped it around himself and gave him new clothes and new blanket. And now I had to run to keep up with this ragman, though he was weeping uncontrollably, bleeding freely from the forehead, pulling his cart with only one hand, stumbling over and over again for drunkenness, old and sick, so sick and old. And he spidered his way so quickly through the city. I wept to see the change in this man, but I couldn't stop following him. I had to see where he was going so swiftly. And he made himself to leave town, to the precincts of the town where he went to a landfill. He came to the garbage pits. And I wanted to help him up as I watched how laboriously he made his way to the top of that hill and he cleared out a little space on top of this garbage heap and he pillowed his head with that handkerchief. And he wrapped that army blanket around him and he died. Oh, how I cried to witness that death. I slumped in a junked car and I wailed and I mourned as one with no hope. For you see, I had grown to love this ragman. Every other face had faded in the wonder of this man and I cherished him. But he died. And I sobbed myself to sleep. I didn't know, but how could I know? I slept all through the night and all through Saturday and its night, and on Sunday morning was woken with a violence. Hard, demanding, pure light slammed against my sour face, and I blinked, and I looked, and I saw the first wonder of all. There was the ragman, folding the blanket most carefully, a scar on his forehead, but alive. And besides that, healthy, and besides that, no sign of aging or sorrow, and all the rags he had taken had been shined for cleanliness. Well then, I lowered my head and trembling for all that I had seen, I myself walked up to that rag man and I told him my name with shame for I was a sorry figure next to him. And then I took off all my clothes in that place and I said to Him with dear yearning in my voice, Dress me. And He dressed me. My Lord, He put new rags on me and I am a wonder beside Him. This resurrected Christ is the one you seek. He take all your filthy rags and give you clean ones instead and has taken them all on Himself. We are the privileged ones who get to disrobe of all the identities, all the constructions that we make to make our lives make sense. We get to strip them all away and say to this risen Christ who alone can be the healing and healer of the nations, will you dress me? I hope you'll let Him dress you This man we've learned about through supernatural mail every day of your life. Amen.